Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative nature advocates and naturalists on the planet. If you have a fascination with nature and ecology, this podcast is for you. I create this podcast as a personal passion, and it's my desire to turn it into something even bigger. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Farnsworth. Andrew is a senior research associate in the Center for Avian Population Studies at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. He has a Bachelor of Sciences degree in Natural Resources from Cornell University, a Master's in Zoology from Clemson University, and a PhD in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology also from Cornell. Andrew started birding at age five and quickly developed a fascination with bird migration, which continues to this day. His research advances the use and application of multiple technologies to study bird movements on continental scales. This includes the use of weather surveillance radar, audio and video recording and monitoring tools, citizen science data sets, and machine learning techniques. Today we discuss one of his primary projects, BirdCast. BirdCast presents near real-time bird migration status, provides migration forecasts up to three days out, and provides local migration alerts to inform conservation action. Creating BirdCast has required decades of research and a combination of many disciplines. Andrew discusses how ground truth observations, acoustics, and radar data are correlated to weather data to produce a predictive model that accurately forecasts migrations days in advance. Andrew discusses how advances in computing technology and machine learning have dramatically advanced model accuracy and accelerated this progress. We get into the details of the model, including why temperature is the most important factor in bird migration prediction, how tropical storms impact migration, and why migration and monitoring in the western United States is different from the eastern United States. We also discuss how birders can use BirdCast for their interests, and the many ways that migration prediction helps with conservation efforts, such as the Lights Out Texas program. You can see the forecasts and a lot of research and technical data at birdcast.info, or follow the team at Dr. Birdcast, spelled D-R Birdcast, on Twitter. So without further delay, Dr. Andrew Farnsworth. Dr. Farnsworth, thank you for joining me today. All right. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the discussion because as we were just chatting here a few minutes ago, this is a convergence of multiple areas of interest for me. Yeah, I've been a longtime birder. I've been a weather enthusiast for well, as long as I can remember, I grew up in the Midwest where we had really interesting weather. And on top of that, these days, I also work a little bit on the periphery of machine learning, interesting topics that I think we're going to talk about today with you. So before we jump in, can you just tell me a little bit about where you grew up, how you got interested in nature? Sure. So I grew up just outside of New York City, Rye, New York, a, a rather green suburb. And I was in a family of scientists and artists and other diverse pursuits. But the the combination of those two things, I think, are what are most important here. So from the science perspective, you know, my grandfather was a biochemist. He had all sorts of scientific instruments around the house, including binoculars. He also happened to have a field guide, Roger Torrey Peterson, 1934 vintage. The important tools of the trade at that point for thinking about observing birds in and around your your home. With that in mind, this combination of those things uh, was absolutely the the right thing at the right moment in the right place. And I had this incredible spark moment with a, a male wood duck one January when I was just about five. That was the thing that just 
illuminated my understanding of whoa birds are just these unbelievable creatures and just sort of this incredible moment of seeing something like that in my home in the middle of winter in this dreary period was amazing and then it was not long after that in the next couple of years that the migration aspect really captured my attention and that was both as a function of understanding that bird distributions and and the diversity of birds I was seeing changed over the course of the year, and that some birds that I was used to seeing in the spring and summer were not there in the fall and winter. And also there were a couple of really amazing movements of birds in that period that I happened to catch, both in terms of hawk movements during the day and seeing these large numbers of raptors, waterfowl, like actual real direct visual confirmation of that something big was going on. And these things were enough to capture the attention like right away. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. You mentioned the wood duck and right, that's that would certainly do it. That looks like a bird that should have come out of a zoo or something and seeing that contrast against the, the gray of winter. So where you lived then, was that a special migratory route? I'm, I'm wondering if you, as a kid, were already just really attuned to the birds, or if you were in a location that really made it more evident. That's a great question. I think the location where I grew up and experienced migration for the first time, every place is unique, but at the same time, it was indicative of changes that were happening across the continent, so to speak, in terms of, of the numbers and the diversity of birds changing. I don't think there was anything necessarily terribly unique about it. But that said, that part of the world, thinking about New York and Long Island Sound and and really its position in a broader regional sense of the origins of birds that are passing through the area and the destinations, it certainly was a great place to experience this diversity. One, because of a coastline that often coastlines tend to concentrate birds. During the day, I experienced this with seeing raptor migration and waterfowl using that coastline for birds orienting to it or navigating by it. And similar things happen at night when birds are migrating. So there is a kind of a geographic and topographic component to it that made migration very evident there. The numbers were not spectacular necessarily relative to what was happening elsewhere in the region, elsewhere in the United States. So seeing what I was seeing was more than enough to captivate me. But in terms of the more global picture, at least from a national perspective, there are places in the U.S. that absolutely dwarf the migration that was happening that I was seeing in in my region. Places like even close by Cape May, New Jersey, and then extending a little bit more broadly, Texas, just like orders of magnitude, more birds on the Texas coast. But nonetheless, the movement was apparent. It was a salient feature that I could see as a kid. And uh, anybody that was observing would certainly uh, see the same thing, regardless of understanding what the relative magnitude was. Yeah, I'm going to have to be really careful in this discussion because virtually everything you say, I want to learn more about. Why is it that Texas or Cape May or or whatever the case might be is is such a hot spot? But I'll temper those questions for a moment. And yeah, of course, today, yeah, we'll probably hit on bits and pieces of this. But the main reason why we're here today is to talk about BirdCast, where you've taken this interest in migration and turned it into something really amazing for a number of different purposes. And I'd love to hear about what BirdCast is and the problem statements that you're looking to solve with it. So BirdCast is this wonderful opportunity of a project that, in essence, is all about trying to understand 
where, when, how many birds are migrating and predict that and then see how we did with the predictions. And at its core, it is a collaboration between the ornithologists and computer scientists. And it it started that way. It started over 20 years ago, really, I think about the late 90s, when a partnership among Cornell, the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, National Audubon Society, Clemson University, and a company called GeoMarine, there was this concept of trying to forecast migration in particular so that the funding agency at the time, the EPA, could understand when, where, how often, when not to apply pesticides. It was this information to inform people's actions, but from the perspective of preventing perhaps an overlap between deployment of all these pesticides and when birds were in a particular area. This is the late 90s. You think about what the internet and what online resources were like at that point. This project was so far ahead of its time in that it was thinking already about the need for big data and cloud computing crowdsourcing information, how to integrate this stuff and visualize it and provide it on the fly and online. And for the most part, there were tiny explorations of each of those things in the initial two-year project. I happened to be at Clemson at the time as a master's student with Dr. Sid Gotro. And my participation in the project at that point was about actually making the forecasts from the simple model that took something that Sid had done in the 70s and kind of just plugged it into what we needed to do at the time. Take some weather forecast uh, information and relate it to bird migration intensity. And the first models, they were built specific to Athens, Georgia, and we were applying them in completely different places like the northeastern U.S. It wasn't quite strung together with duct tape and, and, and wire, but it was close. There was some real forward thinking science there and the concept of applying techniques that years later would be really important. But we took what we had and applied it in a way that we thought worked. And so that that notion of thinking about can we both predict and observe migration from the radar perspective, which was a very sort of new thing at the time in terms of being able to capture it at a regional scale. Could we do that at the same time that we could start to engage uh, ground truthing or confirmation, if you will, from observers on the ground? This is pre-eBird, the very uh, first iterations of online checklist programs and people entering their observations. So could we ground truth the radar data, the migration forecast and what we saw on radar with what people were observing on the ground? And then could we also bring in this whole notion of taking the weather data to make these forecasts? And all of this is happening over this 1999 to 2001 period. And it was all served up online and we had to FTP in at exactly the right time to provide the figures that came from this room in Clemson where the data were downloaded by a specific satellite feed. And sometimes they wouldn't come in and there was this big rush to provide all the data. It was just stressful and and time consuming and, and manual, but it opened up this opportunity of, wow, this is a real possibility to think about forecasting migration. And, and showcasing what was happening and, and integrating these different kinds of data. But it was super far ahead of its time. And by the end of 2001, the funding had run its course and the project lay dormant for almost 10 years. Fast forward 10 years, I was at Cornell at that point, had finished a dissertation there and uh, was doing a postdoc. And 
we were thinking about revisiting this project that maybe the time was right given the advances in cloud computing that really didn't exist 10 years prior, machine learning that was evolving rapidly at that time, and also some really great partnerships with data scientists and computer scientists that were involved exactly in that cutting edge research. And we submitted a proposal to the National Science Foundation. It was funded, I think, in 2011, and that begat the current version of BirdCast. So it took it forward a decade And now a decade after that NSF grant, we are where we are. So it's been a 20-year project that was all about trying to figure out at the core how to predict where birds are going to be on the move and and then sharing that with a a very broad audience. So that proof of concept that began in the late 90s, would you characterize that as as really just a scientific endeavor looking to see if this was possible? Because now in retrospect, we can see so many different applications of knowing where birds are at a given time. You mentioned the EPA aspect in particular. So I I suppose that was the primary driver. But aside from that, I'm curious how you were thinking about it back then. That's a really good question. It's almost as if the original version of BirdCast in the late 90s, it was almost not necessarily taking the science for granted, but it was applying the science straight out of the box of where it existed at the time to an application and doing so in a way that tried to engage people. So from the BirdCast of today, of 2021, it was two components of the three things we do. It was an outreach and education component and engagement of birders and people that were interested in the sense that we were promoting it on the web at that point in its infancy. And the second piece, that it was an application of where the science was at the time in terms of, from the EPA perspective, trying to provide some information that would change human behavior, basically a a conservation action, if you will, very much forward thinking in terms of where we are in the 21st century at this point. But it didn't have the funding or really the necessary time and background to advance the science to the most cutting edge point it could be. So it, it, its concept was really about kind of application and engagement more than the science. The science was part of it, but the EPA funding was sufficient to do the application and engagement part, but really not to support a whole lot of time on the science. Fast forwarding then to today, how do you explain BirdCast to the layman? So when I think about people that may be interested in birds peripherally or may have interest in in trying to understand how do we assess what's going on around us in the environment. I think about conveying what BirdCast is usually from the perspective of really three different approaches. One, if it's somebody that doesn't know very much about bird migration, I think about that there's a huge amount of migration that happens at night that we can't see. The spectacle that we're missing is enormous, like billions of birds every season, and that we need technology that extends our capability, extends our sort of vision, if you will, in quotes, to be able to understand that. So we can use technology like radar to sense what's in the atmosphere. It's not only good at detecting meteorological things like precipitation, but also birds. So BirdCast is taking advantage of this incredible radar data set that we have in the United States, 
federally funded, so freely available public information and taking out the weather so we could talk about bird migration patterns and look at that across the continent and look at it across two and a half decades. So building up this notion of that migration is this spectacular series of phenomena that we can't always see, that we have the potential to study it using some really cool technology, and that then we can take those kinds of integrated bits of information and think in detail about the science and the natural history of migration. We can think about what kinds of patterns relate to these movements, what weather patterns or what changes over time can we see. And then we can also take those data and say, oh, huge numbers of birds are gonna be migrating tonight. Please change your behavior in a particular way. In, in, in particular, turning off your lights at night or perhaps altering your patterns of aviation and where planes are flying or even your biosecurity measures. If you're a poultry farmer that has turkeys and you're concerned about the potential spread of some kind of zoonotic disease, these kinds of links between something compelling, very simple, but largely hidden that people may not know about with cool technology and then real world applications, it's pretty easy to draw people in at all kinds of levels, whether it's novice birder, no understanding of birds and the environment, or someone that's just really involved in, in processes and big data and thinking, why would you do this? What kinds of big data are, are available for thinking about bird migration and, and weather and applications and such? So you mentioned taking the weather out of the radar data. I know that radar systems are really optimized to look at weather. You know, that's the, the primary use case that they have. So much so that there are algorithms to ignore non-weather within the radar, like the ground clutter. So uh, they cancel that out. How do you extract bird data from radar data? So weather surveillance radar, particularly ones that are now in use in the, the United States, what we call NEXRAD or WSR88D, which stands for Weather Surveillance Radar 88 Doppler. These have been around now for over 30 years. They collect all sorts of information about what's happening in the atmosphere. And that includes meteorological phenomena, includes biological phenomena, includes even anthropogenic, human-related phenomena, fires, etc., and military activities. All kinds of things are included when a radar is surveilling the atmosphere. And each of these different types of information, these different sources of these patterns, have particular attributes. And so one of the things that we're able to do even though we're not able to access the rawest possible data, as soon as they come off the radar, we're able to access something that's very close. Obviously, the rawest possible information has every possible way that you could think about characterizing what's in the atmosphere from a pulse of microwave energy that comes off of that radar. We can access the data that are very close to that rawest level, but before the level that a lot of, say, television outlets or other media outlets may provide their weather-only data with filters that suppress 
biology and other things that aren't weather. So we can capture the information in between what comes off the radar in its rawest sense and what happens when all of that non-meteorological stuff gets removed. Because we can take advantage of that, we can start to look for those patterns of typically when, for example, a human looks at one of these images that doesn't have the biology removed, for example, there are very distinct patterns that that the human brain and, and our eyes can pick up on. Whereas meteorological signals like precipitation, hail, that kind of thing tends to look very blocky and irregular in these radar data. The biology looks very uniform and and quite a lot different. Being able to, as a human, understand those kinds of patterns and look at visualizations of these radar data and then be able to train computers to do that for us, to take advantage of the kinds of labeling we can do on different radar data. And then we can examine them and look at the distribution of, oh, okay, here's the heavy precipitation. And oh, here in that data, here are where the birds are. Oh, okay, this is something that is just some kind of ground clutter, like a building or a mountain blocking the radar beam. All of that kind of information we can then build into these models and basically teach computers to recognize these sorts of patterns. Got it. So it's sort of a cyclical process of looking at the data, applying a hypothesis, validating that it's correct, and then going back, repeatedly tuning it over time. That's right. And one of the ways that we know that we can detect birds by radar is looking at some very early studies, really from World War II up through the 1990s, that related direct visual observations from either radar operators or observers with the patterns that were on radar. So obviously World War II, tracking radar, thinking about surveilling aircraft, needing to understand when aircraft were there, as opposed to a flock of migrating birds that you don't want to mislabel as aircraft and deploy a fleet of fighters to attack them for various reasons, all the way forward to the 90s and the arrival of this next generation weather radar watching the moon to see birds flying across the face of the moon, relating that kind of a calculation where you do your trigonometry and your expansive math to create a traffic rate of birds, relating that to the patterns on radar. That's what's underlying this notion of, well, how do we know there's anything biological happening at all on radar? I hadn't thought about the method of observing birds passing by the moon, which is, of course, a tried and true method. Do you use other data like nocturnal flight call data or other sort of instrumentation to validate what you're seeing on the radar and then ultimately validate the prediction that BirdCast provides? One of the really exciting areas of research right now is thinking about different complementary sources of information about birds migrating at night in particular. So radar is just one component of the way we can surveil what's happening there in the the times and at the places we can't see what's going on directly. So yeah, moon watching is one way that we can relate direct observations of, oh, there are birds up there and here's the number to a particular pattern we see on radar. We also can relate acoustic information. So birds that are migrating at night, many of them produce flight calls that are unique to species or at least unique to families of birds. And that can tell us something actually quite unique about what birds are participating in nocturnal migratory movements, as well as just confirm again that there are birds up there. 
We also can think about a couple of other cool technologies, thermal imagery, video, tracking data that provide us some knowledge of when and where birds are on the move in varying degrees of resolution for where the birds are, how fast they're moving, what the species are, etc. And then related, but really a little bit more inferential is we know a huge about about where birds are during the day on the ground from these incredible citizen science data sets that eBird has been collecting now for 20 years that tell us about how many birds, what species, where they are, and relating those patterns of what's in a particular area to how those change in time. That gives us a sense of one, what birds are on the move, which then also informs how do we properly uh, represent the radar data, which don't tell us anything about what the species are involved. We need the other information from acoustics and this inferential eBird data to tell us that. But we can have this feedback, this complementary information of, oh, this time of the season is dominated by small passerines, small songbirds. And then we can calibrate the radar data and our estimates of how many birds are aloft based on those kinds of numbers. So there's this integrative and iterative approach of understanding what's happening as birds are migrating at night that does require a number of different technologies and a number of different methods to more completely characterize what's going on. All this is really important in a, in a very much a holistic uh, view. And the BirdCast service or the website, if one were to go look at it, it, it looks like you can get near real-time reports as to what migration is is occurring as well as a forecast that extends out, I think it's three days. Is, is that right? Yep. Obviously, the radar directly ties to the real-time indicators on the website. I'm wondering then when you're looking at the forecasting aspect, you mentioned a couple of things there. Like one, that there's what do you expect this time of season? It's, I guess, analogous to climate models. If you're looking at weather, one of the inputs that they have is what do we expect the weather to be this time of year? And that you know kind of gravitates towards a, a mean. But when you're looking ahead into the predictive analytics, how does radar come into play there? So the forecasting that we do now with BirdCast really did have its start 20 years ago with these very simple models of taking weather data, temperature, wind speed and direction, pressure, and relating those things to some measure of migration intensity. At the time, 20 years ago, that measure was based on moon watching and migration traffic, as well as very early characterizations by radar of the numbers of birds that were aloft. So 20 years later, we can do basically do the same thing, very simply speaking, but with massive amounts of information. So we can, with the advent of machine learning and cloud computing and such, process hundreds of millions of radar scans and relate what's happening in each of those scans from a bird migration intensity perspective to the weather conditions that were occurring at that time. And we can learn a model that basically says, oh, here are the important uh, weather variables that do a good job of explaining when migration intensity was whatever it was at its highest, at its lowest. And we can construct models like that and then use them 
to evaluate, well, how good is this model at predicting migration intensity? Again, all based on kind of human labeling of the radar data to say, oh, this is biology, this is weather. This process gets us to to a forecast model, if you will. So taking weather data, using that to predict bird migration intensity. And, And what we've seen and what was published in 2018 by uh, former postdoc Kyle Horton, and at the time, graduate student Benjamin Van Doren, who is now a postdoc at the lab, they published this great paper that evaluated exactly this kind of an approach, a continental scale forecasting model that took all of this treasure trove of of radar data, related it to uh, weather data, and came out with a model that turned out to be really excellent and, and explained a huge percentage of that variation in in nightly migration intensity with some very straightforward and and available weather forecast data. Things like temperature, that turns out to be one of the most or the most important predictors of migration from a seasonal perspective, thinking about warming temperatures in the spring and all that comes along with the warming temperatures, uh, nice tailwinds blowing from the south for birds that are moving north. And then in the fall, cooling temperatures that correspond to generally tailwinds from the north for all those birds moving south or southish. This kind of model and this approach turned out to be a really robust way of of thinking about how do we tell people in a very simple format with a very simple message where and when and how many birds are going to be aloft. So it was really right at the core of what BirdCast was all about and a direct connection back to that original modeling effort, albeit at some enormous scale that was uh, not possible 20 years earlier. I see. So to try to paraphrase, you have this real-time data of the radar that you're able to validate what's happening, and then you can correlate that to the weather that's occurring. And then using weather forecasts that I think as, as a science are getting pretty good, you can say, okay, well, the same condition is going to occur two days from now. And thus, it's probably going to have a similar on-the-ground impact to migration. Is, is that roughly accurate? Yes, that's exactly right. So being able to think about these kinds of weather forecast conditions as 24 hours from now, 48 hours from now, even as far as 14 or 16 days in advance, thinking about being able to build a model because we know what the weather is forecast to be. If we know that and we built a model that relates weather forecast data to bird migration intensity, then we can predict what the migration intensity will be. It's interesting too, you said that temperature is one of the main indicators. I I would have thought wind was the primary indicator. So makes sense that temperature and wind are are correlated. What other weather factors have you found to really impact migration? Just to give you an idea of what I'm wondering about here is I know that birds can sense things that we humans can't even really imagine. So that opens up a bunch of possibilities like barometric pressure or I don't know, other things. And then you have the correlation aspects where certain weather conditions are just naturally going to have other characteristics that come along with it. So you have to decouple all that. So I, I, with all the smart people you have looking at these models, I'm going out on a limb to say that you've probably found a lot of other interesting observations about what really drives migration. Yeah. So the details of these forecast models are, there are really a a number of ways to think about these. And, And one I think is a very elegant 
simplicity that the temperature and changes in temperature are so indicative of changes in the atmosphere that relate to when birds are migrating that having this very much basic approach that as a non-scientist or non-meteorologist, even as a non-birder, understanding, oh, in the spring, warming temperatures correspond to, you know, to more birds coming. Being able to, to dig into that a little bit in all, whatever level you engage with that, that, that simplicity is really valuable and, and really cool in that there are these incredibly powerful, very simple kinds of models you can build that explain what seems like a terribly complex series of phenomena in bird migration. Now, that said, when we know that temperature is a primary driver, we also know as, as we dig deeper into the, the patterns we see on radar and also patterns we see in other kinds of studies of migration and migration ecology, that of course, there are other features that are going to define where and when birds move, including the wind direction and speed and, and how birds can either use that to their advantage or avoid challenging situations or move straight through challenging situations. That's an active area of research that, yeah, we know that our thinking from the late 20th century was Oh, birds need tailwinds, for example, winds that are blowing toward the direction they want to go, that they're going to use those more frequently than not to optimize their migration. It turns out that the more we look into that, there's a very complex relationship with wind, that birds are not just using those very most favorable situations, but in fact, they're using a whole array of other situations that may include flying in headwinds at certain times, flying in kind of marginal, like maybe very calm winds, or finding even the closest to favorable winds, the closest to tailwinds as they, they rise in altitude during migration and say, okay, this is good enough. So there's this kind of complex relationship that comes from the simplicity of thinking about a model that says, oh, temperature is the most important thing. We know that all of these other features of the atmosphere and of meteorology and weather go along with that. And, and we can dig into that and look a little bit deeper. We can also start to look at, I think, um, and I think about this going forward, because even though it seems self-evident, there's a lot of opportunity to explore it, is, well, what relationship do migrating birds and rain have? Precipitation one would think would be something that absolutely shuts down migration. And there are certain cases where we see that really intense rain and, and birds encountering it on radar. We can see that on the other side of that, in the direction that birds are moving, if it encounters heavy rain, there's nothing in the atmosphere. So birds are dropping out. But in less extreme cases where birds can avoid that rain or, or maybe move through it, maybe not so intense, and this is borne out by additional observations we're starting to be able to make now, that birds are moving in all kinds of conditions that even five or 10 years ago, we would have said, no way. As it turns out, they actually, they keep going a lot of the time, unless it's really awful conditions. So this notion of taking the, the simple aspect of what weather variable can we predict that would be really simple in explaining when, where, and how many birds move. Okay, we got that with these forecasts and we can look at that. But what if we start to dig deeper? We can learn about wind being much more complex in terms of the way birds experience it and use it. 
We can look at pressure and think about how are birds potentially moving relative to broad scale patterns of air masses and where changes in pressure are, are happening and what birds might be sensing, because that is an open area of research. And it's like at the tip of the iceberg, really. Yeah, that certainly makes a lot of sense. I think any case where you're trying to get traction in a new modeling endeavor, you have to start simple. And and listening to you describe all these different things, it's an infinite number of data points or variables that you could ultimately include. Like even wind, as you point out, at different elevations, you could have very different wind characteristics. And you mentioned that occasionally you do see situations where birds will take flight, then they encounter some severe weather of some sort and drop out. Have you seen any other, through your analysis, any other circumstances where it looks like there's going to be a big migration event and and perhaps the birds do get to a certain elevation and say, oh, this is not the weather I was hoping for and decide to, to wait another day? Have you seen scenarios such as that? Yeah, so in, in starting to explore the this incredible archive of radar data and relating it to patterns of where and when birds are moving and how, we certainly see cases where it looks like birds are literally changing course when they encounter certain conditions. Uh, and those conditions could be meteorological, it could be changes in, in wind speed and direction, it could be extreme weather, seeing birds avoid those things. Or even seeing birds use, for example, after the arrival and passage of tropical cyclones, when they make landfall, often after those systems pass in the clear weather that that follows and the the high wind speeds that are associated with kind of the, the passage of those storms and the remnants of that circulation, that huge numbers of birds will migrate in really favorable winds as these kind of storms move move ashore and move inland. We saw it with Hurricane Harvey, and we're just starting to investigate that kind of pattern of looking at really extreme wind conditions that follow the arrival of these really strong cyclones and how birds may alter their behavior to take advantage of that. We often see that when a hurricane passes, in particular because the seasonal timing is good for large numbers of birds to be moving, you think about August, September, October, major productivity event, if you will, for all kinds of birds throughout the temperate and boreal and Arctic Northern Hemisphere. And those huge numbers of birds are on the move. And when these favorable conditions come after uh, a tropical storm or tropical cyclone comes ashore, they take advantage of them. But seeing these kinds of adjustments in behavior and whatever choices they embody, that's also a really active area of research that we're starting to explore. It's interesting that you characterize it as taking advantage of these extreme wind events, because I think a lot of times people think that, oh, no, they got swept up by one of these extreme wind events and and knocked off course. Yeah, the radar can tell us quite a lot about what happens with respect to birds and these kinds of intense cyclonic storms. So we can see biological activity in storms where radars happen to be able to, to surveil what's going on in the eyes or with inside the eye wall of these storms. And we can see biological stuff, birds, insects coming ashore with these storms. There are a couple of different labs around the country pursuing that kind of analysis of radar data. And we know from a birder perspective, obviously, these storms both entrain birds in the bands of the storm and, and in the eye, you know, crazy records of seabirds far inland and pelagic species 
We obviously know that happens from our birder and field experience. We can start to understand that a little bit further from the radar perspective. And then we can look more broadly about what happens, not only with what does the storm do literally as it comes ashore, as it's coming ashore in terms of in training and displacing birds, but then also what the birds that are experiencing that storm from the terrestrial perspective, generally the land birds and, and other birds that are migrating over land, how do they respond to these kind of conditions and this kind of interplay between storms as a means of entraining and displacing birds, as well as facilitating movements after the fact, something that's really intriguing. And I'd like to think that we're going to start exploring that a lot more. It's a fascinating area that that kind of, for me, intersects with a longstanding desire to know more about the way that hurricanes deposit these wild records into places that are far from where the birds originated, while at the same time creating these conditions that may either facilitate migration or create some kind of detour situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I realized the way I characterized my question, what I was attempting to say is like almost anything in biology, it's, it's not all or nothing. You have uh, a spectrum here. So BirdCast is a tool. How can birders and naturalists use it to their advantage? So the kinds of information that we provide for the BirdCast website, uh, these, this section on uh, migration tools, basically right now there are three components to that. There's the forecast map, there's a live migration map and there are migration alerts. And, and I could walk through those just briefly a little bit. So the forecast map is really designed from the perspective of, of a birder, for example, but also for anybody that's interested in understanding when and where and how intense migration will be. It's designed to look to one, two, three days in the future and forecast migration intensity. So this is for the contiguous U.S., so the lower 48 states. And what the model tells us is actually very specific. It's uh, a forecast for what's going to occur three hours after local sunset. So that's generally the time when peak bird migration is occurring in terms of the nightly pattern, when the most birds are up in the atmosphere. And so it gives you some sense of what the migration traffic is going to be. And then as a birder, you need to do a little bit of calculation in terms of thinking, okay, I am here and the forecast model says that there's going to be intense migration three hours after sunset. Birds are going to keep migrating. So here are the areas where I expect they're going to be in the morning. So thinking about as a birder, yeah, you can guide your experience of either directly experiencing migration. So listening for flight calls on a particular night, for example, when there's high intensity movement or saying, oh, there's a lot of movement happening in this coastal area. I'm going to target that for my morning birding, those kinds of things with a little bit of of, uh, forethought from the birder perspective, because we're forecasting migration aloft, not stopover actually, it needs to be a little bit of calculation. That's one of the ways that birders can use that forecast tool. And so too, for the, the people like say building owners or managers, thinking about understanding the maps as saying, oh, this is gonna be an intense night of migration. I'm going to turn my lights out on that night because I know there's going to be uh, intense movement forecast in this particular place. So that's kind of the forecast map approach. The live map, and, and I, I live is in quotes because it's near real time. It's probably a few minutes after the radars actually collect the data. That really goes hand in hand with the forecast map in, in that it tells you what the radars are actually observing. So, 
from the perspective of birders, it's a much greater resolution because we're doing it as the radar produces the information, a much kind of greater detail about where birds are at particular times in the night. Not only can you see how did the model do, is it doing a good job at predicting and evaluating based on this live map, but also for guiding your experiences about where you actually go birding because the live data go through the entire night right up until dawn. That can give you a better sense of where birds might be at any particular time and where the movements are actually happening relative, obviously, to what's forecast. And then the migration alert piece, that really is a very simple approach to how can I access the forecast data, not from this continental visual, but at a much more local scale. So typing in your city in particular and seeing what the forecast will be for that particular area. Remembering that the forecast is about where birds are aloft at three hours after sunset, not about what will I necessarily see the next morning. Mm-hmm. But those three tools are the starting point for what we can do now with BirdCast and the ways people that can engage with those data. There's going to be more coming forward in the future, we hope, thinking specifically about where a bird's going to be on the ground the next day, where would I go birding, that kind of thing. We want to go in that direction, but right now we're really talking about where birds are when they're migrating. So one thing I've observed, and I know some of my friends as well, is out here in the West, I live in California, it it seems like migration is a little more dispersed and diffuse. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the differences, say, east of the Rockies compared to west of the Rockies in terms of forecast accuracy. Right now, the broadcast forecast models are continental in that we, we make forecasts for the lower 48 states where there are 143 radars from which we can gather data. One of the things that we've seen over 25 years of analyses of those data is that the numbers of birds aloft to the east of the Rockies are enormous, and they're much larger than the numbers that occur in the Western U.S. And there are various reasons for that, that presumably are both evolutionary, ecological, and the intersection with meteorology and climatology. Birds coming out of the boreal forest and going to South America, there's a geography and there's an associated climate and, and weather that allows them to move in those areas in much larger numbers. Now, there are some other interesting patterns that we see too. Obviously, the Western U.S., um, has a much more challenging set of attributes in terms of mountains and mountainous areas and radars surveilling airspace because they have to be elevated to avoid being blocked by mountains, perhaps into places where birds are not moving so much, or perhaps um, they're in in valleys, so they they really sample only a particular part of, of the entire movement. Whether that corresponds to changes in the forecast model, we, we don't think it does so much. But that said, we do see patterns in the West where large numbers of birds are moving really, in some cases, almost all the time. Not as large as they are in the, the East, but really significant kinds of movements, in particular to the West of the mountains and the foothills and the lowlands of the Pacific, as well as in the desert Southwest. And the patterns of movement we see there definitely at times seems like the the model doesn't capture them as well. And, and, And we know from other research that there's all kinds of dynamic weather conditions associated with this mountainous terrain and these kinds of wind fields and changes in temperature that are on a much more local scale 
than they are in the East, that no question that's got to influence the experiences that birds have and then the way that we forecast migration. But does it make for the models behaving wildly unexpectedly? No, it doesn't. But it does highlight for us that, one, there's an opportunity to dig a whole lot deeper in the West because of this complexity of topography and meteorology and the ways birds are moving through these fields, if you will. And two, there's an opportunity to think about, okay, why is this actually working? Like, how are we able to generalize? It seems like even though there's this complex situation happening in the West, we're still able to capture broadly when birds are on the move. So there's something that's going on there that is very directly relevant. It's this really interesting interplay between knowing that something a lot more complex is going on, we may only be representing a part of it, but at the same time, we're capturing enough of it on a regular basis to feel like the models are actually doing okay. And it's certainly worth further investigation because obviously we know that even though the, the magnitude of movement may be enormous and, and much greater in the Eastern U.S., that there's a huge amount of migration happening in the West that I think, broadly speaking, is much more challenging to try to quantify, in particular from the observer perspective, thinking about when you experience migration as a birder in the West, that there may only be very specific locations you go and think, whoa, there's a massive movement that happened the previous night. All of these golden crown sparrows have suddenly appeared. But the dynamics of, oh, I'm spending time in, in Yuma or in some of the riparian habitats in the Southwest and there are Western tanagers and empids and Wilson's warblers all flying during the morning. What's going on with that? Like, why is that happening? And how does that relate to the forecast models? And in fact, is there a lot more dynamism in the West in terms of the timing of movements than is happening in the East? Or it's just, there's a lot there to think about. So given these challenges in the West, is there like any one thing, any one data set or remote sensing technology, or if you could just snap your fingers and, and have what you need to help fill in some of those blanks, what would it be? There are two, two answers to thinking about what's the panacea for knowing everything you want to know about nocturnal migration or bird migration generally, if I had the capacity to have it instantly. One, assuming that there are all these different ways to think about capturing the, the dynamics from the individual all the way up to the population scale of monitoring day and night, species, numbers, everything. The, the Rosetta Stone to integrate radar, acoustic, tracking, eBird, weather, habitat, light pollution data. There's a part of me that thinks um, the integrator of all of those things is going to be really important. And if I had the ability to understand how all of those pieces were related, that would be one thing that I would say, oh, I, I need that because all of these different approaches provide something that we need to understand this real complexity across all these scales. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, if I put on sort of my sci-fi technology hat, would I love to see a single sensor that we could put on tons and tons of birds that told us not only what individual birds were doing in terms of where they were at a specific moment in time and collected information about what was happening around them as well as what was happening internally from a physiological and, and, and neurological perspective, a sensor like that, that we could put on tons and tons of birds 
and learn what populations we're doing and individuals, that would be amazingly cool. Basically, just this idea of the data download from an individual bird with a sensor on it, what it is experiencing both internally and externally and where it is, that would be just incredible. It's a little bit pie in the sky. It's a little bit close enough to reality that we can envision that it might be possible. But I really do see those two different perspectives as what would I most like to have? Probably those two technologies that could do those things in that scale. That's really fun to think about. I then jump to the reality of all of the computing power you would need to crunch all of that data and start to extract the correlations and causations and everything else. So we've talked a bit about how birders and naturalists can use this data. I understand that there are many other initiatives in flight, such as some of the lights out partners in cities when you know there's going to be a big migration push. Can you tell me about how you connect with municipalities or building owners or other groups to help them make decisions based on this data, based on your forecast? It's important for BirdCast to be able to leverage and and take the science we do and apply it to conservation action. It's important from my personal perspective, from the project generally, from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology's mission. So places where we can take the science we do, this whole process of extracting bird migration information from the weather radar data, and then understanding how to, to forecast and observe that, relating it to other features of the environment, studying it across scales. That's all really essential to us. And then being able to provide it in a way that if people want to make changes to their behavior, that it's accessible, that's really important to us. So one of the ways that we we try to engage our communities is from the perspective of conservation action about, well, how can we change our behavior to to protect migrating birds? And one of the things we do is think about simple actions, for example, turning out lights at night. We know that light pollution attracts migrants, it disorients them, it puts them into hazardous situations where the morning following a migration, they collide with reflective buildings. And we know that there's a, a serious issue in terms of in the U.S. alone, up to a billion birds every year are killed by collisions. And a lot of these are a result of light pollution or a direct connection to the morning after light pollution and hitting these buildings. So it's a multifaceted issue that relates to light pollution and to bird safe building needs. So we can provide with the forecasts that BirdCast has developed the two components that we think are really critical for thinking about how could we engage the lights out part? How could we we stop the attraction and disorientation and at least address that part of the equation? So providing one forecasts for one, two, and three days in the future about when high intensity migration is going to occur and working, for example, as we have in this pilot project in Texas called Lights Out Texas with uh, municipalities directly with mayoral offices, but also with on the ground groups that are monitoring bird collisions as well as building owners and managers and people that have residences. Oh, here's a night when you should be turning out your lights because there's high intensity migration forecast, like a lights out alert from that migration alert model of what's going to happen right in my area. We can also provide, on the other hand, oh, when we look over long periods of time, here's the window of the spring when 50% of the total bird migration is going to occur. And oh, in Texas, it occurs over a 19-day period. So if we really want to make a difference, 
in getting people to change their behavior and teaching them when it's important or most important to do something, we can provide that kind of information as well. So take in that science, the, the capability of translating what's in radar data to where the bird migration intensity is going to be highest and when, and then please act as a result of knowing that this incredible pulse of birds is going to come in this window of time or on this particular night. That's a way that we can engage with these different groups. And in Texas, it's been a huge number of partnerships that have allowed us to do that. Texan by Nature is this wonderful on-the-ground partner that's helped us spread the message, but also we've engaged PR firms, we've engaged local Audubon societies, municipalities have bought in. So it's this really incredible community experience where we're able to provide the information and and the insight about what's happening and then have different groups pick it up and run with it. It seems like something that is really a no-brainer in so many different aspects. And in terms of conservation efforts, it shouldn't be very controversial either. I, I, I can't really imagine that there's politics behind, let's turn the lights out and save some birds. It's a great effort. Do you, do you see it expanding beyond Texas? So the Texas pilot is happening at the same time that obviously other groups around the United States in particular, other cities have lights out projects, some of which predate Texas by a year. Chicago's had one that's been very successful for a long time. In fact, the model really for most other cities to do this. So yeah, I absolutely see it applying. I see one of the goals of the Lights Out Texas project is to create a model that has the science to action piece in conjunction with the on the ground partners and the experiences that, that we've had collectively and from the scientific perspective to then inform how to engage people, engage cities, engage building owners, provide information, create visualizations, that whole process. I see that as a model that then we'd like to push out to other places in the United States and, and Canada as well. And then more broadly, globally, because there are weather surveillance radars all around the world. The U.S. is not alone in having a network. So this idea of thinking about birdcast global, if you will, and applying these kinds of science to action approaches and all the science that you could do with the radar data, could you access them? We definitely see expanding it and being able to provide to anybody that wants it the model for how do I take this information and create some positive conservation outcome from it. Is there anything else you want to tell me about BirdCast? Maybe what's coming up next with it or side projects or core projects that you're about to introduce? I think one of the exciting areas that BirdCast is going to expand in the coming years, we're very interested not only in looking back into the archive of, of the current data that we have available to us that go back to the 1990s, really digging in to the natural history and kind of the hypothesis testing we can do, but we do have this potential to go back even further in time. The data that were collected from the previous weather surveillance radar network, the WSR-57, my former advisor, Sid Gotro, had 2,500 films of these WSR-57 data that we're sitting in a barn and we're just in the process of digitizing those. And the thought of being able to use those data to go even further back in time and understand a little bit more about the bird migration system in particular in the Gulf of Mexico region as, for, as early as the 1950s and really explore some data that we're only just 
analyzed to the most cursory level in the 60s and 70s, there's a super unique opportunity there. And I'm really excited about that and thinking about what we might learn from a, a broader perspective in time about this really essential bird migration corridor globally. So that's just one of many avenues that we, we hope to pursue in the coming years. And do you have any resources for people interested in learning more about your work or migration in general that you'd like to point people towards? BirdCast and the BirdCast project, we try to, to span all sorts of different media outlets. So we publish in peer-reviewed scientific literature, and we also promote our research and application and tools through our website, birdcast.info. So looking there and exploring that site, there is background information about how radars detect birds. There are the publications that we've uh, produced. There are our application efforts, for example, Lights Out Texas, as well as the forecast maps and live maps. There's a lot of information there to give some background and explore the capabilities of what BirdCast is doing now, and also highlighting what's going to come in the future and, and where we think we can expand and, and engage even more. I'll make sure to uh, to link to that. And in preparing for today, I found a few articles on the BirdCast website that I thought were particularly interesting. So uh, I'll link to those as well. Good. And if people want to follow your progress or you in particular, where can they go? Like website or social media accounts or, or what have you? I am suspiciously and noticeably absent from social media. I, I don't do it myself. The BirdCast website has been the vehicle for, for me to promote what's happening with the project. We do have a Twitter account, Dr. BirdCast, that Benjamin Van Doren and often Kyle Horton and a couple of other people on the team operate. So we do occasionally post updates there especially when something really interesting is happening. But between those two things, and I think generally with my go-to tool of searching Google Alerts, <laughs> that's sort of where the updates are and, and seeing the updates uh, for what's going on with BirdCast and, and the work that I do. All right, good enough. And is there anything else that you'd like to say today? I just really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you and talk to the audience. And this is a project that obviously has been a, a long-term effort. I see it going forward in, in all sorts of different ways, and it connects me from the science I do now to the original passion of well, why am I interested in migration in the first place. And I hope that we can embody some of that and inspire people to do the same, that, that connection of whoa, I never knew that, and then engender these kind of, like, oh, it's really amazing that I can study this, and I can do science and inspire people and affect change, and I just hope that we can inspire all of those kinds of pursuits, and I just appreciate the, the venue to be able to talk about it a little bit. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you so much for spending all this time today, and I hope somebody out there does get inspired by this. It's such a fascinating interdisciplinary area of study. Dr. Farnsworth, thank you so much for spending all this time today. It was really enjoyable. All right, Michael, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I want to know, what did I miss? Was there a question I should have asked? Let me know at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com or DM me on any of my social media accounts. I'll do my best to get answers to those questions. I'm Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so please consider following me to stay in touch. My goal with Nature's Archive Podcast is to provide nuance and perspective on every topic that I cover. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show all by myself as a personal passion. 
you enjoyed the podcast, please rate it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast service, and please share the episode with a friend. I have tons of ideas and I need your support to enable me to continue to do more. Thank you for your support.